Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Pistol tequila and a corner the full length of the parking lot. Oh, I talked too loose. Yet I talked too open and free. I pay a high price for my open talking like you do for your silent mystery. Come and talk to me. Please talk to me. Talk to me, talk to me. Mr. All right. It is time for you to talk to me. Thank you, Joni Mitchell. By the way, if you've never listened to that song in its entirety, she does a really excellent chicken impersonation elsewhere in that song. Um, I mean, really good. Not like Arrested Development, where none of the Bluth family know how to make a chicken noise. She really can do a chicken noise. All right. So the number, this is Ask or Tell Me Anything. Uh, So the way that works is that you call in with the topic of your choosing. And it doesn't have to be important. It doesn't have to be a hot take on the news. It could be about something that you've just been thinking about. That's ideally would be it would be something that you've been thinking about. And uh, the number is 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. If you're not into the alphanumeric thing, I'll say it again. 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. We have what we call the Hill of Beans rule here, which is that you're Call your comment, the set of thoughts you mean to share, either in the form of a question or a statement, um, you need not amount to more than a hill of beans. So, you know, I mean, that creates quite a bit of room for other things. So while we're waiting to see if anybody actually uh, takes me up on this offer, I will say a little bit about yesterday. Yesterday, you may have noticed, if you're living anywhere here in the Northeast or lots of other places in the country, you may have noticed that it snowed. Uh, and uh, one thing that our senior producer, Lily Tyson, always says is, you know, I hope you get a chance to enjoy the snow. You see, as a dog walker, I don't really think that way. <laughs> First of all, I, as a dog walker, as a dog owner, you know, my partner, the significant other, and I often talk about the possibility of fencing in the yard. And I always think if I fenced in the yard, I would stop. I wouldn't have to always go for a dog walk. And the fact that I always have to go to a do- for a dog walk means that I get a certain amount of exercise whether I want to or not. And I think that's actually pretty good. You know, that's sort of a good thing that several times a day I have to go. Uh, I can't just push a door open and send the dog out. And if you want to know the truth, those of you who do have fenced in yards or who do that, I kind of look down on you. I'm sorry about that. I just can't help myself. So what I do think as a New Englander, and obviously we get less and less snow, it seems, every cycle. So it's kind of encouraging to have snow yesterday. But I do think that um, as a result, we're less prepared to handle snow. 
I mean, if you if you've lived, it's like sort of like you know, famously in Washington D.C., it snows like once every seven years or something. If they get an inch and a half, the city is paralyzed because they're just it, it. It isn't a consistent value across different experiences. It's it's more. I mean, snow, oddly enough, and storms, but particularly snowstorms, are more subjective than objective. It's not you know. Six inches of snow does not mean the same thing in a whole bunch of different places. And my concern about New England is that we may get more like Washington, D.C. because we don't actually have the kind of regular exposure to snow that we used to have. So um, I would just say this. It's mostly what you have. You know, um, if you have a halfway decent jacket and a halfway warm hat and a pair of decent gloves and for those of us, particularly as we get on in years and we really don't want to slip and fall, I can't say enough on behalf of yak tracks or anything like yak tracks. There's things that you put on your shoes uh, and you don't slip so much. I actually own multiple pairs of yak tracks. I'm wearing some right now just so I don't slip here in the CT public building. Um, but they are, it's a wonderful concept. Uh, I encourage you to have them, particularly if you're going to be walking around on you know, semi-slushy, icy roads. And if you've got those things, I, you know, it really isn't that big a deal, except if you have to drive in it. Um, so I want to first say that, and well, I have more to do. Okay, this is an interesting call. Uh, as soon as it's ready, we have a call from uh, Bill from East Haddam. But I do want to say you can call in too. You can get on this show. This could be your big break in show business uh, if you call eight 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 seven two zero WNPR eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. And so here we go with Bill from East Haddam. Hi, Bill. Hi, how are you? I'm Alan? just fine. Good. Um, I was wondering if you've put any thought into the weighty issue of what you're likely to see Mickey Mouse doing now that he's been taken off of copyright. And I have some, I have some things that might happen. Well, yeah, let me hear your things. And what I'm trying to process, too, like it's the early, is it Steamboat Willie and all that stuff? Or is it just like Mickey Mouse now considered to be totally fair game for anybody who wants to make use of him. Is he is Mickey Mouse totally public domain or is it just early Mickey Mouse? This is the kind of thing we can't really I, All right, we'll continue. I think it's just I think it's just early, but I'm not yeah. exactly sure. I think one of the first things Mickey's going to do is is he's going to be uh, overheard talking to Ann Landers saying that he really dislikes children and he wishes he could get some more <laughs> weighty roles. Well, that's entirely possible. That we, first of all, they yeah. So I'm looking at it right now, and it says uh, I, I think he is kind of about to become public domain in 2024. Some of the early works ha- had already been moved into the public domain. Uh, anything published in 1922 or earlier was uh, pushed into the public domain. Uh, and then there's the so-called, and I do love this. Congress passed the Sonny Bono uh, Copyright Term Extension Act, adding 20 years to the terms of older works, keeping 1923 works backed up until 2019. But it's unclear to me how much Mickey we've got. But um, but I, I do think you know a lot of possibilities open themselves up. Um, although I feel like there's a lot. I think the Disney lawyers will just you know, try to enjoin you no matter what you want to do. But say more about your thinking here. Uh, well, another one is he he could go to a biker bar and imbibe too much and, and get in fights with bikers. Oh, he, oh, he could he, he could be in a in a cage match with Donald Duck. <laughs> well, first of all, 
You're making me feel 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 Bill as though this whole Mickey Mouse situation is a little bit of a Rorschach plot. Like the stuff that you the stuff that any person says that they might like to see Mickey Mouse do could say more about themselves than about Mickey, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, you you could be right. You could be right. Uh, let's see. Can I think of anything else? Well, I so I think what is I'm really fascinated by this idea. You might have heard me talking about the idea, the plan for an Elmer Fudd origin movie, but like a Mickey Mouse somehow or other kind of live action, non cartoon origin story movie. You know, kind <laughs> sure. of you know, like like what they would do with Judy Garland or something. You know, you know the studio gets hold of her and. Before you know it, she's on pills and stuff like that. I'm sure Mickey's got a story to tell. It can't have always been easy working in that situation. There's got to be some things he did to deal with pressure. There's got to be things that he turned to. Maybe not the most adaptive solutions, but things that he turned to. Because, I mean, you think about a show business icon. I mean, a show business icon has 10, 15, 20 years of pressure. We're talking about, you know, a century of pressure from Mickey. Yeah. Well, yeah, he, maybe maybe he's really in recovery you yeah. know, from, from some sort of addiction, and uh, and we just don't know it. I think the project we need to be working on is uh, live-action Mickey Mouse origin story. I'm thinking Johnny Depp for the role, just off the top of my head, uh, if he hasn't kind of aged out of that kind of thing. But um, obviously, well, Timothy Chalamet is getting a lot of that kind of work right now. But, um, you know, that kind of thing, anyway— where we would we would see the forces that shaped him, would see the kind of Citizen Kane process he there went through. Yeah, Johnny Depp, I think, would be perfect. Yeah, I mean, if he, as long as he can really do... I mean, I don't know, Mickey isn't any specific age, right? That's another thing. I mean, he's always been the same age, right? He's always kind of talked <laughs> like this. So um, I guess it's not really important how old Johnny Depp is at this point. Um, That's the other thing. Maybe... Maybe Mickey really is a baritone or has a bass voice, and he has to, <laughs> and he's lost his vocal cords now. Yeah, could and he have, can't do it anymore. Could have been a Michael Jackson kind of situation where he just, you know, kept sounding younger and younger and higher and higher. I don't know. All right, there's a lot to work with, Bill. I think you've opened you've opened a satisfactory can of worms. Um, and yeah, a lot of stuff. I think like Rhapsody and Rhapsody and Blue might be public domain. I don't. I don't know in some cases what difference it makes. I mean, obviously, it makes some kind of difference if you're, a, I don't know, an orchestra and you want to schedule Rhapsody in Blue and you have to pay the Gershwin estate something. But uh, uh, stuff is going to start coming into the public domain. It's always interesting to see what does flow in here. I'm, I'm not 100% sure that Bill and I understand how much of Mickey Mouse is, uh, is fully available. But I do want to say, and by the way, if anybody else wants to call in, not about that, but about any topic you want to bring up, I do want to say, and the number, if you want to do that, is 888 888- 720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Lines are open, plenty of room for you. Bring up anything you want. And you can bring up something that you're just genuinely concerned about, perhaps in your community, but or you can bring up something like what Bill brought up. Um, I, related to this in the area of IP, one of the things that I'm intrigued by uh, are lawsuits currently being filed to inhibit the ability uh, of AI, particularly chat uh, GPT, to scrape certain copyrighted materials. Um, because ultimately, what these AI models do, these LLMs do, uh, is they scrape a lot of available data and, and information and everything, store it, reprocess it, organize it algorithmically. These are essentially very, very fancy prediction engines, but to be prediction engines, they need to know kind of more or less quote-unquote everything. Uh, and so the owners of everything 
uh, are, <laughs> are, well, I'm, let me just back up and say that um, the professor and uh, very successful investor and startup guy and podcaster Scott Calloway claims that in the 1990s he was on the board of directors of the New York Times. And as it became clear what search engines actually were going to be and how they were going to work, he pushed, he says, he pushed the board to seek a kind of um, ASCAP BMI model. So that, so in other words, if you compose original music uh, and it's uh, registered under that license, um, it can't be used without you getting some kind of payment. I mean, that's an oversimplification of the system, but but close enough. You can't just you know play a Beatles song somewhere and not pay anybody. Um, his suggestion was that uh, news creators, content creators, that first of all they get together, the biggest ones uh, should get together, form a consortium. Uh, and pursue legal action against search engines uh, because search engines, in order to serve the public and make the kind of money that they make, um, have to do that. They have to crawl and scrape information. Um, And that if they were just allowed to do that free range, they would eventually begin to destroy the very things that they were crawling and scraping. Um, and that's exactly, well, it's not exactly what happened, but that did happen to a certain degree. They, this, the process of, of what search engines do began to vitiate the ability of legacy media to operate the way that it formerly had, was adapt or die. Uh, and even if you adapted, you might not adapt at the same level uh, that you, you used to be at. And you can see that just, you know, in your local um, your, your, your local press, uh, many of the things that you sort of took for granted either are gone or are really, really shadows of their former self. I was thinking about this mo- that, that this morning when I was looking at the Hartford Current. I worked at the Hartford Current for almost 20 years full time. Um, I still have the Hartford Current delivered to my house, a physical copy, mainly out of nostalgia. I mean, not because it's really any use to me. Um, but uh, I was noticing today that you look in the sports section and they have certain sports results from the previous day. And then they have, if you look in the little fine print with what we call agate uh, type, they have, you know, sort of standings and reports. And it'll say late games, late games, late games. So a late game, when I worked at the Hartford Current and for many years thereafter, was a, a game that began at 11 o'clock or something on the West Coast and, you know, wasn't over until one or later. Now a late game is something that begins at 4.30. Um, the, game, the football games that began at, began at 4.30 yesterday are considered late games by the physical Hartford Current. So, I mean, you know, a lot of these entities, they became shadows of their former selves or they went away. Um, and I, I actually do think that it's probably pretty smart if AI poses the kind of existential challenges that search engines did in the 90s or maybe an even bigger existential challenge it would be wise for content creators to do what they're doing right now, which is test the legal waters. Say, well, does it really have the right to take and commodify content that actually is under license, is under copyright, does belong to somebody else? Um, They may lose those cases because in some ways what chatbots do and what AI seems to do is almost the definition of fair use. They are going to substantially modify uh, any content that they find. They're going to turn it to their own purposes. That tends to be a, a pretty good defense. But watch those cases. Um, I think it's the New York Times, actually, that, that may have the first case. But watch those cases because they're important. Uh, and they they may 
you know, 10 or 12 years out portend a very, very different future for some of the legacy media right now. It depends on what AI turns out to be able to do. What we know right now is that, um, and there was a pretty interesting study done recently, that um, that consumers of news want um, purveyors of news, so media sites, et cetera, to um, disclose whether or not AI was used in creating content. Uh, but they also have said in the same study that they would be less likely to use um, a media site that disclosed that AI was used in producing content. In other words, they're sufficiently distrustful of AI, as they probably should be at this point, so that it's a turnoff. But they also want to know. But of course, those things, you know, in terms of the putative consciences of big legacy media, those two things may be uh, in conflict. All right. So uh, we're getting pretty close to a break here, but maybe, maybe not quite at a break. I'll say something else, but a little slow day with the calls. I don't mind that. That's sort of part of the fun and excitement. One of the reasons we do this is that I have an adrenaline junkie problem. Uh, and um, for that reason, um, <laughs> I like to do things that might not work out right. So uh, not many calls here today after a snowstorm. That's fine. The number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Um, and no, we're not going to quite go to a first break because I wanted to say something else about yesterday. As many of you know, for no logical reason, no geographically sensi- sensible reason, I am a big fan of the Green Bay Packers. Like I'm a really, really big fan of the Green Bay Packers. In fact, next week it looks like I will be in somebody else's home when the Green Bay Packers are playing the playoff game. And there's no question that every you know uh, the people who are going to be there are going to be willing to watch the game. But I'm actually a little bit uncomfortable watching the Green Bay Packers with people who a are not Green Bay Packers fans. They're not from Wisconsin. They're not you know they're not going to understand what it's like. And it makes me a little bit nervous and uncomfortable because you know I probably do a number of strange things while I'm watching the game. But anyway, the Green Bay Packers won yesterday and unexpectedly made the playoffs. And I was thinking about how happy I was. You know, and it's. I realize that sports and, and strong sports partisanship, it's a little bit like Keno. You know, it's a little like those, those very well-planned and organized gambling games that let you win enough so that you're flooded with neurochemicals when you win. You're flooded with neurochemicals of happiness uh, when you win one of those, you know, when, when you're successful, when you, when you win at Keno or a slot machine or something like that in a way that makes up for the fact that you will very, very often lose. Uh, now, the truth is when the Green Bay Packers lose games that I want them to win, I'm just heartbroken, heartbroken beyond belief. But it's clearly the endorphins of a day like yesterday are enough to keep anybody going, uh, enough to keep anybody participating uh, for forever. I mean, I was as happy yesterday at 7 o'clock, almost as happy as I get. Think about that. Think about how sad that is, too. All right. We will take a little break now. The number is 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. You can ask or tell me anything. Anything you want to talk about is theoretically fair game. And I Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. 
Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Obviously, we're at the beginning of something. I don't expect you to know where it's going to go. But I believe we might be Yeah, we're up for your hypotheticals. 888-720-WNPR. That's the number to call. If that just sailed by your mind, it was 888-720-9677. We get some calls up on the board here, but it's ask or tell me anything. The phones will be open for the whole hour, uh, and we have uh, three different people to talk to right now. We'll just start at the top of the first person to call. It's Stephen from Oakdale. We've also, oh, no, we don't. Stephen, Stephen, what happened to you, Stephen? Call us back. All right, we'll go straight to Sue. Sue in West Hartford. Hi, Sue. Hi, Colin. How are you? I am just fine. I can't believe you just uh, were talking about the Packers because I have been distraught ever since uh, 425 yesterday afternoon as a huge Packers fan because I couldn't find the game on TV. Yeah, so one of the, there's some things that you can do. Um, one of them is earlier in the week, you can just um, just type NFL coverage map. Uh, into uh-huh. your uh, in, uh, just into Google or something like that. Uh, just type uh-huh. NFL coverage map. That should get you. There are a couple of different sites that uh, provide this, but that'll te- that'll give you actually a literal literal map of the United States with color coding for which games are being played in which markets. So that that gives you an opportunity to know how much of a problem that you have. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you know I um I went on. Paramount Plus, because I Googled it yeah. and said it was on Paramount Plus. I signed up for Paramount Plus, and all that was there was this stupid Giants game. So I was just incredibly upset by it. But I will try your idea. Yeah, well, no, I'll tell you a little bit more. So a lot of it depends. To, actually, what I did that made my life better uh, is that I, first of all, cut the cord. Um, so... Um, uh, I don't have any kind of direct cable service to my house. Um, what I, so I just everything's sort of streamable. Everything's you know digitally delivered. Um, so, but when you do that, uh, 
I have to think about exactly uh, how I do this. All right. So when you do that, you need some kind of provider to give you just stuff that's live channels because that's right. typically not available. So I've got what's called YouTube TV. You know, it's like $70, $70 a month, which is a lot, but okay. it's still way cheaper than cable is. Um, and within YouTube TV, for a small amount more, you got – and Kat, do you know what it's – is it called – is it still called Sunday Ticket? It's called something like that. Something oh. like that. You, but you, you, for like, I don't know, it's not a lot. It's, it's a monthly charge. It probably is a lot when you add it all up. But then you kind of get everything at that point. Um, so you have several different options. You could pursue something like that. I mean, okay. there's only, uh, you'll be able to see next week's game anyway. It'll be everywhere. Although there is, right. believe it or not, an NFL playoff game that will be on Peacock next uh, weekend. I think one of the Saturday games is on Peacock. So people either have to sign up for a, you know, if they want to see that, they have to sign up for the trial and then cancel it or whatever. But um, so it's, the whole Crazy. thing is just turning into a very complicated nightmare. But the other thing you could do is figure out, find some friends who have Sunday ticket and who would welcome you uh-huh. into their house and, you know, don't have COVID. Um, That's a great idea. I, I have the same problem you do, because uh, if I'm in with some people who are not huge Packers fans, it's a little bit embarrassing. Right. I, I, for a long time, I'm going to name some names. I ordinarily try to protect the privacy of my friends, but I don't think that they would mind. But for many years, I watched the games with my friends Bob and Gail from, uh, who live in West Hartford, and we called their house from both fields. Uh, and they, they always had, if you, if you did DirecTV, for, DirecTV for a long time had this kind of Sunday ticket feature, I think almost priced into it. I can't remember, but where you get all the games. So we would go, and everybody was a Packers fan. There are often six to eight of us. And, you know, I mean, the kinds of Packers fans who, and I'm not going to name names here, but because <laughs> I am, I already did. Like, if, you know, if, they, if the whole thing comes down to a, a, a 38-yard field goal with two seconds on the clock, you know, yeah. Bob yeah. would be like in the kitchen. He wouldn't be able to just even, you know, watch it. You know that kind of instinct. So that's who you want to be with. You want to be with people who care as much as you do and know that Betty Sapp is a third string, you know, safety called up from the practice squad and stuff. And so so find your fellow, you know, if I I knew you better, if I knew you better, I'd invite you over to my house. But, you know, (laughs) on the other hand, I could be a psycho killer. So be careful. Be careful. You never know. Thank you, Colin. That could be how I get people into my net. Um, all right, so that was a little bit bespoke. That was probably a conversation most of you weren't that interested in. Um, and we might be about to have, oh, well, no, let's do this. We'll do this. We'll come back to Uncle Bill's tweezers in just a second. Um, oh, that's a good one, too. I like Bob. Uh, all right, here's Grace in Milford. Hi, Grace. Uh, hi, uh, hi, Colin. So happy to have you uh, with this program uh, with open questions. Uh, I just would like to ex- express my frustration after seeing this blockbuster exhibition at the Met Museum in New York City, uh, Manet Degas. I have to, to tell you that I, I hope it is not my last exhibition at the Met because, uh, because it's so overcrowded. And that leads me to a more general question as a, as a docent at the Wadsworth and as, a, as a, an art lover. Aren't the museum over-advertising the art? I know that over at least last 10 or 15 years, I, I had less and less pleasure of 
seeing those big exhibitions, it almost leads me to go to go to the smaller museums with their more modest collections of art, but where art can be truly appreciated. So yeah, I, I would I, like to just. Yeah. I have a few thoughts about this, Grace. So first of all, I think we have to acknowledge that there's sort of a damned if you do and damned if you don't quality to this yeah. in the sense that the economic survival of museums does require them to create blockbusters, the, the the kind of I've got to get there, I absolutely have to see this because all my friends will be talking about it kinds of exhibitions. But I completely and thoroughly concede and join in on your point that those are often cattle calls. They're kind of horrible. It's like trying to go to the Musée d'Orsay at, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon on a, uh, on a you know, week in July or something when everybody's in Paris. Um, I mean, you just, you, it's, it, you do feel like cattle. You do feel like just sort of you're being marched around and just passing by certain picture frames for, for moments. And it's not the right way to look at art. So the, the, the first thing that everybody needs to think about anyway is the importance of dividing your time between that and the permanent collections. Um, I mean, the most absurd example of this, of course, is the Louvre. You go to the Louvre, you know, there's three pieces that anybody knows about that are in the Louvre. One of them is the Mona Lisa, which is just crowded with people who want to take selfies or whatever the hell they want to do. You know, they, but they want to go see the Mona Lisa so they can say they did it, so they can check the box. The Louvre obviously has this gigantic collection. And, and if you wander away from those two or three, you know, loss leaders, you can have fabulous paintings across centuries of time all to yourself because nobody's going there. Um, and and I, I do share your sense that art contemplated in leisure without a huge amount of crowds, without this kind of sense that you're, you know, you're at some kind of rave um, is is the better way to do it. Sometimes it is that little odd epiphany that you have. You know, you're looking at some Giacometti sculptures and then you look over at a soluit wall drawing and suddenly it all makes sense to you for one blazing moment and then you can't remember what it was you were thinking about. But those kinds of really wonderful moments with uh, with the fine arts, they, they don't happen for the most part in the stuff that you're talking about where you and 400 people are trying to look at the same painting at the same time. Um, so, you know, I mean, you can always wander away. That's the truth. You can go look at the rest of the Athenaeums or any anybody else's personal, uh, you know, permanent collection that the people aren't all smashing their faces up against, and and that's a good way, good thing to do. Even if you felt like, yeah, you had to go there because it was the, you know, yeah, there was Monet and Degas. Everybody's going to go see it and all this kind of stuff. Okay, so fine, go see it. Then you can tell people you saw it, and then spend eighty percent of your time looking at something else. Does that make sense at all? Uh, absolutely, uh, and it also leads me to because I yes, these are absolutely uh, uh, like damnable questions uh, that we might have when when it comes to do we do it or we don't. But then we have to sometimes close the museum uh, because we can't exist. Uh, but it, it leads me to uh, maybe uh, that might be a, a good. Um, subject for you, for let's say a few of the directors of uh, our museums uh, in Connecticut, like the Wadsworth or Bruce or Aldrich, uh, to kind of uh, have an open forum yep. and see if they, if the larger discussion can start, because I, I'm sure you and I 
are not the only people who feel this way. No, I agree. And, and we, we could do a show like that, and we could do it not just with people like that. We could get somebody from the Met. I mean, all our guests are on by Zoom, so we can go anywhere we want. I, I'll just do a quick shout-out to the Yale Art Gallery. And I think the Yale British Art Museum is still this way, too. These are – I mean, you need – it all comes down to money, you know? You, you need to have big exhibition, big exhibitions and blockbusters and stuff to keep your subscribers interested in, uh, interest, interested in the facility and to get bodies in there, get people walking through the gates, walking through the turnstiles um, was the point I was going to make. Oh, but if you have, a, like, a lot of money the way that Yale tends to <laughs> – you don't worry so so much about that. Yale the art, Yale Art Museum is you know Yale Art Gallery was whatever it's called. I go there all the time. It's free. You just walk in, um, and I think the British Museum is still that way too. Um, and then you know you just go to whatever your favorite stuff is. I have like a list of stuff that I like there, and you know you just go. So that's another way you can do this. All righty. Wow, we've got all kinds of interesting calls here. I don't even know what to do next. But, you know, this this is sort of a, uh, you know, an emotionally poignant question from Bob in Litchfield. Hi, Bob. You're on the air. Well, thanks for taking my call, Colin. This is something that's been in the back of my mind for many, many years. When you were way back when on WTIC in the afternoon, occasionally I'd get out of work early enough to hear you on my ride home. And following you was Rush Limbaugh. And I would listen to him for a while and then turn it off. And ultimately, you were dropped from WTIC, and Rush Limbaugh continued with his vast audience in America. And I've often wondered what you thought about that. I mean, I couldn't stand Rush Limbaugh. Well, yeah. So let me just say a little bit about this. So just to fill in the history for people who don't know it. Actually, I was with WTIC for 16 years, um, about six of those years or, or less, I had a show from 10 to, 10 to noon, 10 to noon, and then Rush would come on at noon. Um, and uh, then for a longer than that, more than 10 years, I think, I was on an afternoon drive. So when Rush's show was completed, the next thing you heard was me. Um, so I, was, I sort of got Rush from both ends. You should pardon the expression. Uh, and um, the other thing I would just tell you, because it might amuse you and anybody else, I was added to WTIC on the same day that Rush was acquired. There was a big shakeup in the world of radio, and so different things got moved to different places. And so TIC acquired the, right, the rights to put Rush Limbaugh on. So I went on the air. I had no radio experience. And I was did a fairly terrible first show, and I didn't really know what I was doing. And then I did my second show. It was Tuesday, and I, I still didn't know what I was doing. But one thing that I didn't understand was, so radio stations have delay um, so you know, to prevent people from saying bad words so you can bleep those words out. But what I didn't understand was that TIC in those days would go into what they call straight time during the news just because you need to coordinate with traffic planes and stuff like that. <clears throat> so, so you go out of delay, and then delay has to cook up when you come back. So coming out of the news, I took a call from a woman who wanted to complain about the fact that yet the previous day she had for the first time heard Rush Limbaugh on WTIC. And she said, how you people can put that? And then she used the A word. Um, on the air, and I darted a look over to the control room, and the the, the board ops was, was like shaking his head at me, saying, "Nope, nope, can't take it out." So that was my accomplishment on my accomplishment on my second day was that the A word was used about Rush Limbaugh on the air. I'll just say this about Rush, because yes, I you know, I mean, I sort of had 
It was like, you know, being uh, Karen Silkwood at Kerr McGee. I was exposed to Rush Limbaugh materials, radioactive Rush materials. He, he was always a very, very talented guy. People just who didn't like him just thought he was a big idiot. He, well, he, he's a fathead. He was a total fathead. But he knew what he was doing. He had very, very sharp broadcasting skills. If you looked, listened carefully, he could be very funny. Uh, and, yep. and I think, you know, we people left of center were just so mad at him. You could sort of forget that he was actually kind of funny the way that he was doing some of the stuff that he was doing. But what bothered me, and I think it was something of the bunny slope leading towards where we are now in terms of truth, uh, in terms of of an epistemic crisis, uh, was that he would say stuff that was just radically untrue and some of it borderline defamatory. And I, I occasionally I would hear something that shocked me so much I would go to the program director or usually the operations manager uh, where I worked and I would say, you know, he just said this thing, you know, it's so racist and not true, not true or so horrible. And uh, should we run a disclaimer or something saying that that doesn't represent the views of our station? And he would look at me and like I was out of my freaking mind because the way that this kind of radio works is it works by pushing the envelope. Uh, and I ultimately understood that that was my job too, but from a different political orientation. Push the envelope as far as you can go. Until somebody makes you stop, you push the envelope as far as you can go. So they weren't interested in having Rush Limbaugh be reined in. They were interested in having him go to extremes because that's what sells and that's what their their demographic worked. So I don't know. I mean, I you know, yeah, he, he stayed, I left, he stayed. They purged me and anybody else who was not pretty far to the right uh, all on the same day. Diane Smith and Stan Simpson and I all got bounced out of there. So, yeah, that was good company. I don't know. Uh, look, it came out great. Look look where I am now. So much better environment. Uh, but they don't let me be a brat, so I don't like that. There's like a whole other former WTIC. Uh, little, I think we need to take this call. I need to make the little cursor work. This is a call from, oh, from Iman in uh, New Haven. Who, who else would, would call up about this topic? Uh, oh, I'm so excited. So uh, explain what your topic is, Iman. Um, sure, Colin. I was thinking, actually, I think you re-aired your um, episode about invisibility recently. Yes, and it we made did. me think mm-hmm. um, it would be cool to have you guys talk about teleportation and like what would it take to actually get there. Um, I really want teleportation to happen. I was thinking that in like high school when I was learning Spanish, we could have taken field trips to Mexico City and went to like Frida Kahlo's house and that would have been really cool. <laughs> I'm sure there are other great applications for teleportation, like seeing family more or like, yeah, not using planes that add to climate change. And obviously then we'd have to power teleportation with like green technology but i don't know i I wonder why that's not something if it's even possible maybe like scientists already like okay truly cannot happen we cannot rearrange people's particles safely but i don't know i i'm curious if there's anyone thinking about that kind of stuff in a realistic way yeah i would be shocked if there isn't at darpa uh, an ongoing teleportation project, project, and probably at the Russian equivalent of DARPA and a few other superpowers as well. Um, you're right; would be a great topic. Uh, the person who took your call, Lily Tyson, is the kind of person who would probably produce a show like that. I can see her nodding in there. She already wants to do a teleportation show. You've you've already changed the course of history, Iman, just by suggesting this. Uh, but I, the other thing that I think is kind of amusing. So you know, most of the tech sector, as we know, is underregulated. I mean, you you know, Facebook just does whatever it wants and does like horrible things and it, you know, causes 
depression and people to value their own lives more and teens to go off in horrible directions. And you can't, nobody can do anything about it, apparently. The federal government lacks the will to do anything to regulate the tech sector. It's sort of why you've heard me say this before. When I look at something from the tech sector, I think that's something that probably is under-regulated. Like, neither Lily Tyson nor I have Venmo, because uh, my theory is nobody knows how Venmo works, and it's not being regulated by anybody. Uh, you're just kind of hoping Venmo works. So the teleportation would, I think, have some other interesting problems. For example, let's imagine that, since I just mentioned uh, in passing the Musée d'Orsay uh, in Paris, let's imagine everybody wants to go to Paris, right? Because it's the mm-hmm. most popular tourist de- destination. And the only reason everybody, quote unquote, isn't in Paris is because they have to buy plane tickets <laughs> and go through Charles de Gaulle Airport. And there's like a, that's why everybody isn't in Paris. Um, sure. So... One problem you might have is you might have to like people want to go see Frida Kahlo's house. I don't think there's going to be a huge problem there. You know, I don't. I don't think there's. There going was to be. a long line to get yeah. in when I went to Mexico City. All right, so maybe there is a problem. So, so what if that line was four times line. as long because nobody really had to go through much of anything? Of course, the other question it has to do with passports, border security. I mean, think of all the sure. just all the unveiling that goes on right now about border security and the attempts to make it the predominant issue in in this election year. Imagine if you could just step into you know Scotty's transporter and just be descrambled in a location of your choosing. Well, so that makes me think about Star Trek a little bit. And yeah. yeah, like I right now I'm watching Deep Space Nine and sometimes they visit Earth and um, Jake goes to see his dad in New Orleans, or his grandfather in New Orleans to visit his restaurant or whatever. And it's all like there is just one Earth government. So there yeah. is no like need for passports and all of those things. So Maybe but that but they also, they routinely, Iman, beam down to planets where people don't even know they're coming. I know, <laughs> you know? that's kind of interesting. That it's like, what are you doing here? You didn't go through customs. What are you doing here on Valoria? Well, you know, well, I don't know. We just beamed down. We didn't even know there was anything we had to do. Why? Is there something we got to do? Um, yeah, there's TSA over there. Go get frisked. Um, yeah, you no, guys, that's a good point. You guys have phasers with you. What are you doing on our planet? Um, so, but I love the question. I love the question. I mean, I want teleportation too. I think about it. There's a lot of places I would like to go right now. Um, I mean, I'd finish the show first, but um, but then I would probably, you know, I'd probably go to Milan or something. All right. Thanks yeah, for the, for the co- afternoon. There you go. For the afternoon. Exactly. Yeah. You know, maybe drive north a little bit, go up to Asiago, buy some cheese and then teleport home. Um, you know, why go to Whole Foods when you can go to Asiago? All right. We got to take a break. I love that question. Uh, you can call 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. And I will answer your, your call, I guess, probably. Which way you go for? Which can it be? Which way you take now? All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 at ctpublic.org slash Colin, which is also where you can sign up for our delightful free fortnightly newsletter, The Newsletter. You can listen to any episode on any podcast app. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. And special thanks to our producer. Well, first of all, our technical producer, Kat Pastor. Oh, special thanks to Gina Matruda. I have to do this periodically. Like, sometimes I come in here, particularly on Mondays, and stuff just isn't working. Like, it just... 
who knows what it did over the weekend. I think sometimes the computers just have a big party over the weekend. I don't know what they, whether they use drugs or alcohol or probably some kind of digital thing that gets them high. And then you, they come in and I come in and they're just hung over. So, and then I go running down the hall to Gene Amatruda and he starts everything up and makes it all work again. So very important to say thank you to Gene because uh, that's exactly what he did with like, you know, we had eight minutes to go before the show was going to start and nothing was working uh, or at least some important things were not working. Uh, thanks to Lily Tyson, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. She's in here uh, screening calls today. We have some exciting... I, can I just quickly tell you about a show we're doing later this week? Because I'm excited about it. You may have noticed that for some reason or other, the Civil War is like really important right now. Uh, you've got Nikki Haley who choked uh, on when she was asked uh, about the causes of the Civil War. Then uh, over the weekend, uh, Trump said that uh, maybe they could have negotiated their way out of it. It was such a sad thing, so much loss of life. Maybe they just should have negotiated, you know, cut a deal. If somebody knew at that time what you might refer to as the art of the deal, maybe we would would have gotten out of this. But Trump is also being uh, prosecuted. Uh, One of the uh, articles uh, of one of the charges uh, brought by Jack Smith in the January 6th case has to do with deprivation of the right to vote. I forget what the legal term of it is, but it was a law passed at the time of Reconstruction, at the end of the Civil War. Uh, And for that matter, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which is the means by which he has been excluded, at least for now, from the Colorado and Maine ballots, is also a post-Civil War measure. It was drafted in order to keep people like Jefferson Davis from running for office and becoming president. Um, So really, we're kind of stuck in the Civil War right now, and we, we don't know why that is, but we are very interested. Well, maybe we do know what it is. I have no idea. Um... All right, so let's see. All of these look very interesting. Well, let's we'll get this out of the way. This is a little bit of storytelling, although I think it did come up recently on a, a show produced by McCusker the Wonder Kid. But here is Mark from West Hartford. Hi, Mark. Hello, Colin. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, your recent, your recent uh, nose letter made me uh, interested in uh, knowing about your drive time, and I miss you on that other radio station during the drive time. But during that drive time, you often hawked Uncle Bill's tweezers, and I want to let you know that I enjoyed them so much, I bought two. Yeah. I was wondering, do you own a pair of I, Uncle Bill's tweezers? I, I do. Well, over the years, I've owned a lot. So let me just back up and say this. Um, Uncle Bill's Tweezers was not an advertiser. What happened was I decided to try to start the most pointless game show I could think of. <laughs> so we had a game show that aired, I think, on Fridays. Uh, it was called Win Those Tweezers. Um, and it was sort of a quiz show. I don't re- really remember all the details. But what you got out of it was um, <laughs> instead of like $64,000 or something, you, you could win a pair of Uncle Bill's tweezers. And they were made locally. Uh, and they were like cut out of one piece of, uh, pres- of metal with uh, high-precision tools. And if you won, you would get uh, your name engraved on the tweezers. And also there were celebrities who would go on. Oddly enough, one of the people I remember going on, like like Dick Blumenthal went on. He played with those tweezers. And I know for a fact that Henry Lee played with those tweezers. And he had a very interesting way of, of winning. A, a, he won and he did fine. But anyway, yes. And then we wrote a theme song. Uh, for the show, the, um, Scott Metcalf and I wrote the uh, Win Those Tweezers love theme, uh, which introduced the show. And at the, I believe it's true that, so Win Those Tweezers was run by a man, I believe, named Elwin Harp. And when uh, Elwin Harp passed, I believe um, the Win Those Tweezers theme song was played at his memorial service, which always made me feel very, very good. Uh, and they're very good tweezers. 
And yeah, I, of course I own some. Uh, they get lost easily, though. Tweezers are not very big. All right. Oh, boy. we get to, Well, this. Uh, I don't know if we're going to get to Don, although he's a very interesting thing to talk about. But we'll, we'll go to David first because he's been waiting a while. Hi, David. Hi, Colin. What? So as a truck driver, I'm against uh, teleportation because they're going to start doing widgets before they do people. Maybe they could but be like a, maybe right. they could do a weigh-in thing, you know, like they do with trucks, basically. If it exceeds a certain weight, you can teleport it. You, we could regulate the crap out of teleportation. Anyway, continue. So anyhow, uh, what I wanted to propose, I know will never happen, but as a unaffiliated voter, I am socially towards liberal and fiscally a little closer to moderate. And so with the national debt, I think eventually we have to come to some kind of resolution. And so I think what they need to do is match dollar for dollar tax cuts, uh, tax increases with spending cuts. Have the Democrats do the spending cuts have the Republicans do the tax increases so that they don't try and deliberately screw over the other party. You know, you are a dreamer. You know, you know um, <laughs> I guess, you know, when you're driving down that highway, uh, thoughts come to you. And I love that you're thinking about it this way. I mean, there are reasons. I mean, first of all, deficits aren't quite as bad as people sometimes think. Paul Krugman, although he has changed his tune a little bit lately, but Paul Krugman has, has um, said for years Borrow, federal borrowing isn't necessarily a bad thing. A, a fairly good-sized debt or deficit, which is the rate at which the, de- the debt grows, are not, necess- not, less, not necessarily terrible things. And, of course, a little bit of the problem – I mean, I love your concept, but a little bit of the problem is entitlements. Entitlements grow, you know, kind of whether you do anything or not. Um, th- there are things like that. There are entitlements and other federal commitments that grow just as a matter of course as opposed to a new appropriation. Um, I don't know. I'm not sophisticated enough to know what would be the right thing to do. But I will say this. You're right in suggesting that there's a partisan structure to all this. Um, and, oh, yeah. and, you know, typically the Republicans say that the Democrats are all about tax and spend. Although when the Republicans are given a great deal of power, in my experience, they don't really cut spending as a whole. They shift spending. I mean, for example, Reagan just shifted a lot of spending over to the Defense Department. And then they increased the deficit. I mean, Republicans are, I find, more eager borrowers because they can do that in lieu of a tax increase. It's easier to borrow politically than it is to raise taxes. Trump just proved that. Uh, in his four years. Um, so somehow or other, everybody has to get their partisan, partisan inclinations uh, under control. And I have to get myself under control. Don from Wallingford, I'm so sorry we didn't get to your story. Call next time. We'll do it again in two weeks. Thanks for listening today. We got to go.